welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Bobbin Threadbare, the lead at Maiden, a project recently acquired by Polygon. We start with a quick Starks versus Snarks 101, and then we take a journey through Bobbin's early work on open source Stark libraries, how he learned Starks and learned Rust, all the way up to the project that he works on today. That is Maiden, a Stark-based ZK rollup, which is an evolution of his earlier work on Distaff VM and Winterfell, Winterfell being a highly performance Stark prover developed at Facebook's Novi. This is a very ZK-heavy episode, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Before we start in, I do want to let you know that it's the last chance to donate to the Zero Knowledge Podcast Gitcoin grant during this Gitcoin CLR matching round. It ends, I believe, tomorrow. So yeah, if you want to donate, this would be a great time to do it. There is also a dedicated side round focused on Zero Knowledge right now, so be sure to check that out as well. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Aztec. Aztec aims to be the privacy layer for Ethereum. They believe that unlocking programmable privacy is the next frontier for blockchains. Aztec is the first zero-knowledge rollup built from the ground up for anonymous payments and DeFi transactions. Join the thousands of users already sending funds privately on ZK Money. That's ZK.money. And start interacting with Aztec today. So thank you again, Aztec. Now here is my interview with Bobbin Threadbare. So today I'm here with Bobbin Threadbare, who's the lead at the Maiden Project, a project recently acquired by Polygon. He's also the author of Distaff VM and Winterfell. So welcome to the show, Bobbin. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for having me. So Bobbin, we met back in September, October 2019. I remember you were speaking at a Starkware conference, and I I immediately knew that like you were like a, a Stark guy. <laughs> I want to, and I know that like the projects and, and work that you've done since then are very Stark focused. I want to start this interview by actually getting a little sense for you pre-ZK. What were you up to? Kind of what led you to get into this? And maybe where did you enter the space? Yeah, definitely. So um, I actually entered the space relatively recently. I would say it was summer of 2018 when I really got into crypto. I've known about Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, you know, way before and kind of was passively observing what, what's going on but really actively got involved in 2018, kind of started thinking about cryptography. And, you know, when I say actively got involved, uh, I actually started to learn about cryptography and trying to think through all the uh, kind of math aspects of it and kind of more structural things uh, that uh, are needed in blockchains and things like that. So before that, I actually was uh, running a small startup. It was kind of like a, not a not a crypto-focused startup, it was just a regular web company focused on uh, kind of uh, trying to figure out how you can maintain uh, like a personal reputation across different services and sites. Um, mm. And it was a very centralized product. And I didn't like the aspect of that where basically all your reputation data is being stored in a single server. So I, uh, one of the kind of motivations for me to learn crypto was figure out how, to, how can we make it decentralized. And as I learned more about crypto, I got really interested in uh, zero knowledge proofs and specifically this general computational integrity proofs, which are Snarks and Starks, because for whatever reason, it was immediately clear to me that this is something that is really needed in blockchains because you know, the, the promise is that you can 
verify a computation and then nobody else needs to rerun the computation. And in blockchains, like basically every node has to re-execute the same transactions and it just seems wasteful to me. So uh, it was very clear to me that this technology, ZK, will is something that is kind of natively needed in blockchains because it allows you not to re-execute the same piece of code on millions of machines. Yeah. Would you say that you started in, though, on the Stark front, or were you kind of generally exploring zero knowledge at this time? I would say I started even more broadly on the crypto side, tried to learn about elliptic curves. So uh, I'm a software engineer by training, uh, and I don't have any cryptography background. I'm not a you know math PhD or crypto PhD or anything of that sort. So it was all very new to me. So I started to learn about elliptic curves, uh, kind of other cryptographic primitives, and uh, trying to understand how they fit into different protocols, like you know signatures and how hashing works and all of that stuff. So that was something that I learned throughout, basically starting from summer 2018 onward. <laughs> And uh, by, I would say by early 2019, I got to zero knowledge. And that's where it really clicked for me that this is really exciting and almost you know borderline magical technology. And I didn't go right for the Starks. I kind of like read a few things about Snarks and Starks, but for whatever reason, uh, I think Starks resonated much more with me than Snarks did. And um, I usually explain this is in my mind, and I think many people might disagree, but Starks is simpler to understand. There is very few foundational things that you need to have. Like you don't need to understand, for example, how elliptic curves work to be able to reason about how Starks work. So there is no need for this, a lot of advanced crypto that is needed uh, for most other Starks, like elliptic curves and pairings and all of that stuff. And uh, yes, you can treat, I think, those as black boxes and still understand how the basic stuff works. But for me, it was much easier. Like basically, I I know that even with Starks, there is a lot of different layers and a lot of theoretical complexity, but at least kind of the core mechanism was much more immediately clear to me. That was one of the reasons why uh, uh, I kind of gravitated towards Starks. Something that I feel we've definitely done on the show before, but I'd kind of like to do again today is make that distinction between Starks and Snarks. So I think I've often highlighted what the resulting differences are, like how it appears, but maybe you can give us a little bit of insight into what those differences are kind of under the hood. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Well, one thing I should probably say up front is that I think the terminology is getting blurred more and more, and it's kind of like not always clear what you should call a Stark and what is uh, a Snark, because I think people use them uh, in different contexts, and there is like a more kind of formal mathematical definition that, uh, you know, some people argue about what exactly <laughs> should be called a Stark or a Stark. But, you know, going back when they started, uh, at the time when kind of Starks came about, Snarks existed as the, in this uh, kind of paradigm where you had to have a trusted setup. So one of the things that Starks promised was the absence of a trusted setup. So transparency is something that is the, what the T in Starks stands for. So you don't need a trusted setup. This is not the case anymore. There's other proving systems right now that uh, do not require trusted setup. Uh, mm-hmm. Like uh, an example would be Halo, for example, doesn't require trusted setup. The other distinction between a kind of like a very fundamental difference between Starks at the time and uh, Starks is that the arithmetization used. So Snarks at the time uh, relied on R1CS and you know mm-hmm. R1CS is still probably um, one of the more popular ways to describe computations for uh, this proofless computational integrity. Uh, but uh, Starks had this different type of arithmetic called air, and that is a very different thing. Now, 
Nowadays, there is again a bit more blurring of the lines that is happening because uh, Plonkish arithmetization is also kind of closer to air. You can even say it's like randomized air with pre-processing and you know things like totally. that. So there is actually more similarities now, but there is still quite a few differences. So I would say uh, for the most part, Starks rely on very few cryptographic assumptions. So like basically from the cryptography side, you use you only need to have hash functions for Starks. Uh, for snarks, uh, you still need to rely on elliptic curves, and sometimes mm -hmm. it, you know it could be pairing-friendly elliptic curves. Other times it could be just regular elliptic curves. But there is still uh, a need to rely on uh, kind of more advanced cryptography, and that also you know potentially makes snarks vulnerable to quantum computers. So one of the benefits of snarks is that they're resistant to potential um, you know future quantum attacks, totally, uh, because they only they require very little kind of underlying cryptography. Uh, the other uh, distinction, which is I think it depends how you interpret it, but basically Starks uh, say that they're fully transparent and they don't require any pre-processing, which is, um, you know, a verifier just needs to know the error description and that's it, and they can verify any proof. While Starks frequently, um, you know, require some level of pre-processing and that, you mm -hmm. know, there is, the distinction is that besides verifier and approver, there is also this indexer that uh, runs and pre-processes the circuit or something beforehand so that the verifier can evaluate it uh, succinctly or verified succinctly. So there are those distinctions that uh, I think uh, are still relevant. I actually like have this diagram in my mind where there's like two circles, snarks and starks, and they overlap. Mm -hmm. And basically anything uh, that is non-interactive and transparent and uh, kind of scalable, uh, this is uh, kind of falls into the, this intersection of two circles. I see. Uh, and that could be, you know, scalable, transparent snarks are starks, and then non-interactive starks are snarks as well. So <laughs> it's kind of like there's an interse intersection between them. Well, let's talk a little bit about the kind of outcome of these two systems. So maybe we can start with like looking at the proof size. How are they different? Uh, so the proof sizes, specifically, like how big of a proof that uh, gets generated by the prover and, you know, how much you need to uh, send to the verifier is definitely bigger for Starks. But um, I would say to give like a common uh, benchmark is that Snarks like Growth16 and Plonk, uh, the proof sizes are tiny. Um, they yeah. could be 200 bytes or maybe half a kilobyte or something like that. So they're they're really, really small. For Starks, um, even for simplest computations, we're looking at maybe like a dozen kilobytes. And then for, you know, more useful computations that we frequently need to encode, like some uh, circuit that does verification of a transaction, for example, uh, the proof sizes are in dozens of kilobytes, um, you know, uh, 80 kilobytes, potentially closer to 100 or something mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, rough ballpark. It, it's very computation dependent and also depends on the security level that you want. Uh, but basically, Stark proofs are at least an order of magnitude larger than Stark proofs. And, you know, in some situations could be like two orders of uh, magnitude larger. Got it. But I would say this comes with, uh, this is not necessarily the inherent property of Starks, but it comes with a uh, kind of this uh, need to rely only on a few, very few cryptographic assumptions. So if you only rely on hash functions, your proof sizes will have to be fairly large. As soon as you can rely on elliptic curves, you can bring the proof sizes down dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you lose like post-quantum security, for example. So your proofs no, are no longer post-quantum secure. So in theory, you could build a Stark that is uh, kind of using, you probably uh, heard the term fry as uh, something that is used in Starks, but you can uh, use uh, some other polynomial commitment into the fry. Uh, or you could instantiate fry uh, to be done using an elliptic curve rather than, you know, hash functions. 
And in that case, your proof sizes will go down dramatically. But then, yes, you do give up. First, you give up the post-quantum security. Uh, and second, your prover speed is probably is going to increase significantly. So the proof speeds, when you need to rely only on hash functions, for Starks especially, uh, proving speed is very good. Uh, they're very fast. Again, there is a little nuance in that. It depends on the type of computation that you are generating a proof for. But uh, for a lot of computations that we do care about, Starks are, uh, are very, very fast. But as soon as you start, need to rely on elliptic curves, uh, you kind of lose some of the speed advantage as well. Hmm. When it comes to the verification sizes, is this is this calculated in time spent on verifying, or is there like a like we're talking about proof size, but is it also like is it verification time? So there are two aspects to it. There, are, um, there is the proof si size itself, which obviously the larger proof, uh, you know, uh, you incur a little bit of penalty, but there is also a verifier time that it takes to verify the proof. So mm -hmm. uh, for Starks, even though the proofs are very large um, compared to other systems, the verification time is fairly uh, small. Yes. Uh, because again, you're only validating hash functions, which are very fast on, you know, modern computers. I think the, the verification time between Starks and like, let's say Growth16 and Plonk are fairly comparable. They're not uh, hugely different. But as an example, Bulletproofs is another system. It has a very relatively small proof sizes, you know, under a kilobyte or maybe like, a, depends on, again, what you want to verify, maybe slightly over a kilobyte. But then the verification time could be significant because uh, it really depends on how big of a computation you try to generate a proof for. So the verification time for Bulletproofs is linear in the kind of complexity of the original computation. Uh, which is not the case for Starks and Snarks, uh, where uh, this verification time is logarithmic. Uh, so there are these two aspects, the proof size and the uh, verification time. And uh, Starks do fairly well on all metrics, except for the proof size. <laughs> Got it. But I guess, like, have you also seen a lot of development in that? The fact that there's this overlap and techniques have been shared between these two systems. Do you think that is that proof size actually shrinking? Or do you think you've hit, have we hit the bot, like the smallest it can be for now? I think the proof size for Starks, uh, you can't reduce it mu much more without like giving up something. Uh, so like it will stay in dozens of kilobytes unless you give up one of the things. And like what I mentioned, for example, you can give up post-quantum security or you can start losing elliptic curves and then you can shrink down the size you know, probably uh, by a factor of 10 or something like that. Uh, but without giving up that post-quantum security or maybe something else like prover speed, it's, it's very difficult to shrink the size. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, I don't want to say it's impossible because I don't think I have enough of theoretical background to say that, that nothing can be done to do it. But at least as far as I'm aware, there is uh, uh, no known or kind of like even uh, promising technique to uh, reduce the Starks proof sizes uh, significantly without giving something up that, uh, uh, you know, kind of like forms the core promise of what Starks are. But I, I do want to say that I think the proof sizes are. Like, I think a lot of weight is being given to the proof sizes, but I think for the computations that we care about in a blockchain context, uh, proof sizes are not necessarily that important, especially if you can do recursion. Mm -hmm. So if you can, uh, I haven't seen the recursive Starks yet, but this is something definitely that I'm hoping to build uh, cool. in, you know, uh, sometime in the future. But as soon as you have recursive Starks, the proof size becomes much, much less of a, an issue because, totally. um, you know, you can take a thousand proofs and generate a, a recursive proof of verifying all of the thousands proofs and you shrink the size of that one proof significantly. So mm -hmm. um, I, I do not think that, uh, I think at this point, maybe the proof sizes are somewhat of a disadvantage for Starks, but uh, it's not a fundamental disadvantage. Uh, I think in the future, uh, we should care about proof sizes much less. 
And and when you say the word recursive, just for our audience, that that means kind of like taking a snark and then making a snark out of that snark. That's usually how we hear about it. Recursive snarks, right? Sort of like snarkifying snarks, as Isaac from Mina would call it. But when you talk about recursive snarks, is it the same concept that you're like taking multiple snark proofs and then you're potentially creating an overarching snark that combines that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly the concept where, you know, you have many, many proofs and you just, uh, instead of uh, a verifier having to verify this thousand of proofs potentially individually, you can verify mm-hmm. a single. There is another layer of uh, uh, stark proofs, which aggregates all of these uh, proofs together, and then you have just a single proof. So, okay, you know, cool. you go from a thousand proofs, 80 kilobytes each, to a single proof, you know, let's say 100 kilobytes, and that's it. Nice. And so I guess that could be, it could be said that you're starkifying starks, but... I don't know if anyone's going to use that. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this gives us a pretty good picture of what the Stark is, also in comparison to Snark, something we've covered a lot. But let's go now into the projects that you've built using Starks or around Starks or for Starks. So when we met, you were working on something called Gen Stark. Like, what was that? What was that project? This was actually the first project that I started working on in zero knowledge space. Okay. And the way I got to work on this project is actually very interesting because, you know, as I mentioned, I was doing this research for my other startup and, um, you know, my other startup wasn't doing that well. So I kind of decided to sink more time into this and just really learn about, um, you know, as soon as I figured out what snarks and starks were, I really wanted to kind of like understand them deeply and see how they could be leveraged even outside of the startup that I was working on. And, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Starks resonated more with me in part because I thought it was simpler and it kind of like made immediate sense to me uh, how at least the basics of the underlying mechanics work. But also I thought, and I know a lot of people will disagree, but I think Starks are more future-proof because, you know, if we're going to have you know, quantum computers in 10 or 15 years, and if I'm going to spend next X number of years learning something, might as well do <laughs> spend the it on something advanced. that will... The most advanced. Exactly. Yeah. So there was very limited resources out there at the time uh, about how you can learn about Starks. So to be honest, there was some posts from Stark where there was the blog series uh, from Vitalik. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like went through it. And I think one of the things that was immediately useful to me is the Vitalik's tutorial uh, on Starks uh, because it actually had some Python code attached to it and you know, ah. I can read code. So it was uh, easier. So for me, the way I learn personally is I try to like build something. I learned I learned by building. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna just rewrite this tutorial using you know, a different language. So at the time it was JavaScript, which uh, looking in retrospect is a horrible language to uh, write starts in because it's very uh, you know not performant. Uh, and you get very slow <laughs> proving speeds and all of that stuff. But, uh, you know, that's what I chose. So I basically started out by rewriting that tutorial in JavaScript. Uh, and as I was writing it, I, I first of all, I understood how uh, the internal mechanics work, but also I, you know, the tutorial was very specific for one type of computation. And I saw the opportunities how you can make it, you know, work more useful, where you can take it as a library and, you know, try to, uh, generate start proofs for other computations. So I started to generalize it to something that is not tied to a very specific circuit, so to say, or a Got specific it. computation. Uh, and that's what Gen Stark was. That was the kind of general purpose Stark prover, which you could provide, you can you know, verify any type of computation with. And that's what uh, I think I shared this uh, uh, kind of like the early version of this on ETH research at some point. 
And to be honest, the, the response was incredible. Uh, so like a, a few people reached out, Vitalik reached out to me, a few other people from the community reached out and asked, you know, offered support and help and mm -hmm. work on that. And Starkware guys reached out and, you know, invited me to that conference where <laughs> we met. It was very, very, I would say, encouraging to see such a uh, level of response and support. And uh, I kept working on this library. But then I uh, kind of like, in my kind of thinking, even the library itself was very difficult to use. You, like, uh, so that led me to try to think, okay, how can I make it simpler? And that would led me to like thinking about like air script and air assembly languages, which uh, the idea was that it's, uh, how, how do we make it simpler for regular developers to write start proofs? We actually have a video, like there is a video recording of like you giving a talk on AirScript that I'll link to in the show notes. Um, I know you did just mention air arithmetization, but I don't know if we really dug into that. Like the name air, what does it actually mean? What is it actually doing? Yep. So air is uh, basically, it's an acronym for uh, algebraic intermediate representation. Uh, okay. And uh, it is the, the way uh, that you describe computation so that the start proving system can understand it. And just to take a step back, there is, you know, if we think about programs that we want to prove execution of using SNARKs or STARKs, we can just take a source code of the program and run it directly through the proving system. Uh, there is this step that is called arithmetization that basically takes a program as written in some language, you know, let's say uh, C or Rust or, um, you know, JavaScript or whatever. And uh, we need to describe it using kind of like a set of polynomial equations. And this is the step called arithmetization. And SNARKs use uh, arithmetization that is called R1CS that mm -hmm. basically takes a computation and describes it as a arithmetic circuit. And SNARKs use this air arithmetization that takes a computation and describes it as, uh, you know, inter intermediate algebraic representation. <laughs> is it somewhat like the opposite of what a compiler is doing? Are you going the opposite way or would it be some sort of compiler? It's a translator, I guess, right? It's it like is a translator, okay. yeah, but it is not going the opposite way. It's not generalizing, uh, I think, the original code, but it is kind of evaluating the structure of the code. And, uh, you know, in all honesty, this compiler is usually, at least for in a case of error, is very frequently a human who is trying to take the computation and, and describe it in using polynomials. And that's, by the way, one of the complexities of Starks is that uh, it's not trivial of how you take a computation and transform it into air. There is quite a bit of complexity associated with it. And that's uh, one of the reasons, for example, and then I think we'll talk about this later, is uh, that people are working on virtual machines where you only have to write air once and then you don't have, like, you can generate any Stark proof on that virtual machine, but the air part is only developed once rather than for each specific computation. Okay. For uh, SNARKs, the computation is called R1CS, and it's, yeah. uh, you know, in many ways it's simpler because it's it's easier to compose different R1CS uh, circuits, so, uh, so to say. The technique of how you can translate the program into R1CS is uh, also, you know, can be automated to a higher degree, degree I think, than uh, you can do it with AIR. So there is um, quite a few libraries out there that, like, you know, have gadgets for R1CS. There are very few, or if any, libraries out there that have gadgets for AIR, because, again, composability of AIR directly is very difficult. Mm. So there are policies in mind, and I think that's why a lot of people kind of gravitate toward, like, R1CS and other SNARKs, as, as opposed to SNARKs, because of the complexities of arithmetization. Uh, but hopefully, like, with advent of these virtual machines, this uh, is not going to be an issue. Yeah. It's almost like, do you feel like you're building the foundation so that people can start using this stuff without needing to be in the weeds? Or are you creating a framework that they can easily make these decisions for how to do it and do it correctly? 
I think even from the time when I started to work on Genstart, my kind of end goal was how do I make it so that you don't need to understand cryptography or you don't need to know anything about zero knowledge proofs to be able to generate start proofs. So mm-hmm. uh, I think we're getting to the point, we're not you know 100% there yet, but we're getting very close to the point where you don't need to be a cryptographer or you don't need to really understand Starks to be able to use them. I think uh, the tools that I've tried to build, like starting with Genstark and then AirScript and AirAssembly, and then uh, Gstaff VM, that was the next evolution of kind of my journey, was kind of trying to make it progressively reduce the burden of like you having to understand cryptography. And that is that is the goal. And I guess that actually leads us to your next project, which was Distaff VM. Like, tell me how somebody would actually interact with this. So like we've talked about VMs before, virtual machines on the show before, usually in the context of EVM. That's the one we say the most. But what is Distaff VM? So Distaff VM, I think, was because it's now superseded by a different VM, but uh, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later. But it's a, basically a virtual machine in where there are a lot of other virtual machines. You mentioned EVM as another example, but it's a virtual machine that has its own assembly language, and you can write programs for that virtual machine in, in this assembly language. Uh, and this is, you know, regular assembly language. You don't need to understand like anything about cryptography to write programs for this VM. And the advantage of this VM uh, was that for any program that you write, it automatically generates a start proof. So it kind of does the translation uh, out- automatically for you. You don't need to think about how do I need to express my program as error. The VM has its own error and it is able to execute the program that you write and generate a proof for your computation without needing to generate new error for it. That's the biggest advantage. I think to give a little bit of context about how this VM even came about is that, you know, I was working on those error script and error similar languages and, you know, I spent quite a bit of time, uh, probably close to half a year working on them. And I got to some point, but I, it wasn't satisfactory at all. It was still very complicated. I, you know, a person who've never seen Starks or understood how they work still would have a fairly high learning curve before they would be able to use any of those languages. Uh, and that led me to think about what is the better way. And uh, the better way in my mind was building this VM. Uh, but at the time when I started working on it, I actually didn't think you know anything useful will come out of it. It's uh, like the story or the journey that I went through is very similar. I think you had uh, Zcash people here on the podcast, which described how they came up with Halo, where they started with something that they didn't think was oh, practical. Yeah. It was in the implementation. It was like as yeah. they were building it in, they found this like secret, something researchers had kind of missed. It was interesting. I, I wouldn't say that I found the secret, but like basically I started working on this VM without thinking it would be very useful or powerful. So like, uh, you know, I, I knew some simple techniques that make it could make it work. Maybe I thought, you know, it would be very limited. And as I was working on it, I discovered that, well, I think I can now handle if statements. I know how to do if statements. And then uh, I built if statements and then uh, I was like, okay, and now I think I know how to do loops as well. So, ah. and then, it, you know, and then I worked on some more and it's, I, I think I know how to do random access memory. And basically, you know, over a course, I would say of like four or five months, it went from just a toy project that I basically didn't think was going to be useful for anything mm-hmm. uh, to something that I now think can support Turing complete computations and basically cool. is a general purpose VM. <laughs> uh, but that, I, I didn't start out trying to think, okay, I'm going to build a Turing complete virtual machine. I, it was more kind of like, okay, let me experiment and see how things work out. <laughs> In that era, though, like, was AirScript the language to write on the Distaff VM, like basically I'm curious if there was a DSL in there, if you had a domain specific language for this or you're using something else. 
So there was a DSL, but it wasn't AirScript. So the way to think about this is that DStuff VM supersedes AirScript. So AirScript was my earlier attempt of how you make Starks accessible, but it didn't succeed as much as I would like it to have succeeded. Okay. So DStuff was kind of like starting from a, a blank slate. It, it did have a kind of domain-specific language that's called DStuff assembly, basically, which is the assembly language of the, of the VM itself. But yeah, it, it, it's basically, you don't need AirScript if you want to use DStuff VM. Got it. It's, it sort of covers it up. Like we're, we're leaving AirScript in the past. We're moving forward. Right. And right. now I want to I want to push forward because I know like just FEM is also like midway through the journey, I guess, maybe, yes. maybe not. Maybe it's yes. still even beginning. So let's talk about what you did next. I'm going to let you tell that story because I know kind of what came out of it, but I don't know what iterations happened in there. Yeah, so actually, you know, Distaff VM uh, uh, is still or was still uh, like a, you know, research type of project. And there were a few things that, you know, I wanted to improve. Like, first of all, it wasn't feature complete, but more importantly, like the underlying proving system I thought was could be improved significantly. So it wasn't a very high performance system for generic start proofs. So actually, you know, Halfway, I would say I, I kind of put Staff VM aside for for a little bit, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I joined Facebook as uh, part of their research uh, group. And in there, I got the opportunity to work on a lot of zero knowledge tech uh, and Starks as well. I think uh, overall, th the outcome of this was the Winterfell project, yeah. <laughs> which is a kind of a underlying, like a basically a very high performance and uh, capable Stark prover, and you know, up to the protocol itself is uh, much better implemented as compared to this stuff. And I worked on it uh, over a course of probably like eight months or so at Facebook, and uh, had a lot of help. Actually, my experience uh, working in Facebook at the, in the crypto group was uh, extremely positive, but the, I, I basically was able to collaborate with extremely bright people there and ah. they helped me a lot. Uh, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I'm not a cryptographer, so I was able to rely on more kind of a, a theoretical uh, expertise of people who work there. And it was very interesting. The environment was very collaborative and very open. Uh, I think uh, I'm grateful a lot to be able to kind of have chosen my project more or less freely at the time yeah. uh, and being able to work on Winterfell. But at the end, so we, we built Winterfell. This is a Stark Prover. And the idea now is that we can swap it for the Prover that was in the Distaff VM to make Distaff VM and actually the new iteration of Distaff VM much more powerful. So you can rely on this much more advanced Prover. I see. So Win Winterfell is like a component within this VM model that you were already building. Exactly. Okay. And it's making the Prover more efficient. Is it making the proof smaller or is it making the proof creation faster or what? what is it doing? Yep, yep. So it's doing a lot of those things. Uh, okay. But I think uh, the way to think about Winterfell is that you still need to pr bring your own air to describe it. So it, it, it is still at the level of abstraction that is uh, not as developer-friendly as this stuff, for example, is. Okay. Uh, so you need to still understand starts, you need to still understand air, you still need to be able to describe the constraints yourself, but you can describe any constraints on, on Winterfell and, you know, it's a general purpose Stark prover. So it's very similar to what I was trying to do with GenStark in JavaScript, but it's now done in Rust. It's now done in, in a way where it can run in multiple threads, so it generates proofs much faster. Uh, the implementation of the Stark protocol, as I mentioned, is also uh, up to date, to at least to what I am aware of. So the proofs are smaller uh, compared to like the uh, proofs that were generated by uh, Gen Stark or Distaff VM. Uh, they're still in dozens of kilobytes, but you know, roughly half the size of what it used to be uh, with the old uh, provers. Very cool. What was Distaff VM written in originally? Like, you, did did you have to rewrite anything for it to work with this with Winterfell, which was in Rust? So Distaff VM was also written in Rust, but oh, it was, uh, okay. I should say that 
that was my first project in Rust. So I was still learning Ooh. Rust as I was writing this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I love how so many of these like so iterative. It's like your learning project is also like power, like eventually powering these like really powerful things. That's cool. Yes, I, I think. I mean, <laughs> again, this is how like by doing, I learned by doing. So for me, yeah. like I was like, okay, I should learn Rust. What's the best way to do it? So did you have to go back and like rewrite any of this, or did you get? sort of collaboration from, I don't know, any of your colleagues in, in doing this? Yeah. So even though Gustav VM was written in Rust, uh, we basically rewrote the prover for Winterfell from basically from scratch. I mean, it was, okay. it started kind of the core started um, by copying some of the Gustav uh, underlying components, but at this point it's unrecognizable. So much has changed in part because, uh, you know, I can code in Rust better in part because I uh, also uh, understand Stark protocol much more deeply now. So it's kind of nice. a journey where uh, a any subsequent piece of code is much better than the previous one. <laughs> cool. Winterfell, uh, even though it started out as uh, kind of core uh, stuff prover, it's very, very different. And now, I think we'll talk about it later, but the next iteration of stuff VM, which is called Maiden VM, mm -hmm. uh, is using Winterfell as its component, but it's also taking the some parts of the stuff. So uh, over the last few months, I actually uh, released uh, the release of Maiden VM 0.1 is basically migrating original stuff VM to use Winterfell as the backend prover. So now this is what Maiden uh, VM 0.1 is. Very cool. And this this works. This is what I wanted to talk about next anyway. I felt like that was going to be the following. So Maiden is the project. And would you say Maiden is Distaff VM rewritten around Winterfell? Like it's basically like in that process where you kind of were going back and rewriting some of the stuff, it just sort of, it did shift. It changed enough that you felt like it was actually a new product. It is a new product now, but it is even going to be a newer product in a few months from now, because I see. Uh, at this point, basically, the uh, Maiden VM 0.1 is just the Distaff VM using Winterfell uh, Prover, which makes it more efficient, uh, faster proofs, okay. smaller proof sizes. And, but the functionality of the VM is still the same as Distaff. You still have the same kind of relatively limited instruction set that, uh, you know, it still doesn't have random access memory because I never got around to implementing actually random access memory. But at the same time, like uh, over this year that I was working on Winterfell and other things uh, at Facebook, I've... Uh, realized that there could be a lot of improvements done to to the VM itself to like make the instruction set more useful to add random access memory to adapt it to I would say a blockchain environment where you know you could prove solidity programs using Maiden for example uh, so what I'm very actively working on now uh, is uh, developing this new version of Maiden VM which will be even more developer fr friendly and I can talk a bit more about like what I mean by that but uh, it will basically support uh, languages such as Solidity and other high-level languages and will be specifically tailored to blo blockchain work. And I can, uh, Maiden VM itself is a part of a bigger project, which we can, I guess, talk about in, in, in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we need to now, like, mention some big news that happened recently, and then we can maybe dig a little bit deeper into, like, how what kind of the plans are for Maiden. But yeah, so I think it was a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, that we we heard that actually... You know, someone who had worked on Winterfell was joining Polygon. That was the way that this kind of came across. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about this move and what this means for Maiden. Yeah, so at Facebook, uh, you know, I worked on Winterfell, but I uh, one of the things that I still really wanted to do is kind of make this kind of transition to build or develop Staff VM further. And uh, while there, I got approached by Polygon guys and they talked to me about kind of their vision of how they want to evolve Polygon suit of solutions and things like that. And, you know, it, it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, I think uh, it is fairly clear 
uh, right now that they're be- they're betting very heavily on zk tech and uh, yeah. there are a number of kind of different solutions already being developed and uh, Mikhailo from Polygon knew about this stuff VM even way back when I was working on it. Uh, he didn't know about me working at Facebook because uh, Bobbin actually is not my real name. So I work under different names <laughs> in different places, I guess. That's fair. I only know you as Bobbin. Yes. I'm, I'm going with that name. <laughs> yeah. So basically, like the reason why people didn't hear about me for a year, because I was working under a different name <laughs> and uh, Winterfell was released under a different name as well. And then, you know, I talked to him about my work on Winterfell and uh, like what I would think about next evolution of this stuff. Yeah, and I think it fit well into uh, their view of how they want to st- approach this strategically. So uh, I got the opportunity to come and work uh, to Polygon to kind of make this stuff VM a much more powerful VM and build a, a layer two solution, a, a roll up around it as well. So there was a name change from this stuff to Maiden, uh, kind of to uh, signify that this new VM is going to be much, much more powerful. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of new things that uh, I think justify the name change. And uh, it is, as I mentioned, going to be just one component of the overall. So once the VM is built, or at least is in a stage where it is powerful enough to support uh, uh, the types of computations that I needed to build a rollup or a general purpose rollup, there will be work starting around trying to uh, make this into a layer two solution that can uh, execute arbitrary smart contracts and generate start proofs for them. Very cool. Does this have any sort of echoes of ZK EVMs? Like when you, you know, here you're talking about a VM in itself, so you can actually do quite a lot. There's like a Stark that's going to act sort of as the as the connector, I guess, to the L1 between like an L2 and an L1. Yeah, like because we had Jordy on the show. Jordy Hermes, also a company that's now part of the Polygon family. And there we had talked about the ZK EVM idea. So would you put that in a similar category or is it a different VM? Like, does it not actually interact the same way the L1 would? So it is a different VM, but I think kind of the overall goal is, I would say, similar. It's just the route to that goal is, uh, for example, for Jordi and uh, for Maiden is different. Uh, I think at this point in time, there are quite a few projects out there that are building uh, different types of zero-knowledge virtual machines. Uh, there is, uh, you mentioned Hermes and Jordi. Uh, there is Starkware with Cairo. There is uh, ZK Sync with, uh, I think they call it ZK EVM or something like that. And I think there is uh, two or three other projects that are trying to build virtual machines that are automatically generating zero-knowledge proofs. It seems like this is uh, the way, at least in, in a lot of people's minds, to forward in terms of how you can support very uh, organically zero knowledge proofs on, on you know in the blockchain world. <laughs> so this uh, virtual machines all make different trade offs and different different design choices, and I think there are yeah. pluses and minuses to those choices. And I think the space is very early in terms of figuring out you know which set of those uh, choices is the correct or maybe appropriate for a given use case. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, to, to compare with Jordi's approach that you uh, mentioned, so Jordi's building a very close to EVM replication of the VM. Exactly. We talked about it, like opcodes will be the same. Yep. And I remember it was something like you take a, let me see if I see if I do this right, but I think you, you take a Stark-like construction and then you snarkify that and then you write it on chain. So he's, he, there's actually this combo. Yep. I mean, those are very valid design choices. There is a reason why you would want to do that, let's say, support EVM at the opcode level, because, you mm-hmm. know, it will uh, make it much easier for people to migrate smart contracts. Maiden VM takes a slightly different approach. So there is a VM that is different from EVM. There is going to be its own uh, assembly language that has its own opcodes. But the idea is that it will be powerful enough for you to be able to compile Solidity into it uh, so that you uh, you can mm-hmm. migrate a, a smart contract you know, basically at the bytecode level, but you can migrate it at the Solidity level. So there is 
it may be a bit more involved in terms of migration, but uh, you know there are other pluses and minuses that you know it offers. One of the benefits, for example, is that I'm really interested in is supporting other languages besides Solidity in Maiden, so you can potentially have a safer language or something that prevents you know has more rigorous static analysis or something like that that you know potentially could eliminate some bugs and things like that. Interesting. What do you kind of imagine, like, if the two projects, and I, I feel like it's not the only one for Polygon, but I know that things maybe haven't been announced yet by the time this airs, but if you're both kind of building this out, do you sort of see, even in the Polygon universe, like two of these running for different purposes, potentially interconnected? Or do you do you picture them both connected only to the like the, the L1? I think it's, it's possible. I think it's too early to tell how exactly the architecture will work out just because uh, the stage of the, the development is fairly early. But, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't see why they can necessarily serve different use cases and be interconnected for specific purposes. Uh, you know, I think all of that is possible. Uh, but again, it's very early. And uh, I think the way we work on this is actually very collaborative. We, within Polygon, we have uh, like weekly meetings where we discuss like the, the things that each of us is working on. And as you mentioned, there is more than just uh, Hermes. So like the, uh, the team, the ZK team at Polygon is fairly large at this point in time. So it's very exciting Crazy. to have these conversations and basically share ideas on uh, how like I'm trying to solve something and you know somebody might have already solved it. And then if I will you know, have some solution that somebody is trying to figure out. So we've uh, it's actually been very interesting. By the way, just to kind of like, as an aside, as I was leaving Facebook, one of my concerns was that I had this really awesome team that worked, uh, you know, I worked uh, together with at Facebook, and I wasn't yeah. sure what it was going to be a Polygon like, but uh, I think uh, so far I can say that the experience has been very similar in that where there is a lot of people who are deeply understanding crypto and uh, zero knowledge, and, you know, I collaborate them, you know, almost on I wouldn't say daily basis, but definitely like, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. And we kind of discuss all of these things. And so this has been a very good outcome in my mind. Do you also feel like leaving a big kind of corporate? I mean, you built Winterfell as an open source project, which is awesome, yes. but it was within a corporate. Um, now you're in a crypto company, I guess we'll call it Web3 company. Yes. Do you feel like is there is there more openness also with the community outside of the org? because you're in this new situation? Or do you feel like actually in Facebook, they were pretty open as well? I think so. There are two aspects of it. There is the aspect of like working with uh, directly with your colleagues, which I think in Facebook was pretty open. It was very, like everybody was fine with open sourcing things. It was very collaborative environment as well. And you got all the freedom, to be honest, you know, as part of that research organization. And I can speak for a larger company because, you know, I've only been exposed mm-hmm, to like mm-hmm. this crypto research organization within uh, Novi, which is like part of Facebook. It's been a very open and free environment to experiment and kind of, I mean, the mandate was that we are working on future tech so we can take this kind of uh, experiments and figure out. What, you get to be real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get to do kind of like the fun stuff. Yeah. The, the, the other aspect <laughs> of it is where you need to interact with the outside world uh, and when you need to go through kind of all the, the bureaucracy of the large company. Uh, that was mm. much less kind of streamlined as it is, for example, in Polygon, because even something as simple as giving the outside interview uh, requires a lot of approvals, even uh, trying to publish. I know. <laughs> I remember trying to get someone on for Winterfell. <laughs> He was just told, like, nah, you're going to have to go through tons of stuff. So I was like, okay, fine. I, I think, like, one example, just to contrast, uh, again, a larger organization like Facebook versus a smaller, uh, kind of more nimble, I would say, organization like Polygon, is that when we wrote a blog post about Winterfell, it took about, like, a month and a half before we could publish it. 
so the wow. blog was already written, but it had to like be approved. There was like other teams involved that needed to do this. I think within Polygon, we, we wrote the blog within a week, basically, and got, we published it. So again, like within the crypto research team, we wrote the blog was ready, but it then took another month and a half to get it published. And here it was much, much faster. And, you know, there are objective reasons why some organizations need to be slower and get, uh, you know, layers of approvals. But, uh, you know, those are the, the facts. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it has purpose. We, I mean, I think it's understandable why they need to do that. I don't think it's out of like maliciousness that they take longer, but it is from the outside, especially when you are just kind of trying to get some insight. It's a bit frustrating and, and it sounds like you're in a little bit more of an open space now. I kind of want to keep going on that idea of like the open source tech space. So far in the Stark world, there's been one large project, Starkware, that has sort of dominated a lot of the narrative and thinking and research around Starks. Do you feel, though, like, is it time that there's going to be actually like a pretty full outside open source version of Starks coming? Do you see that sort of on the horizon? Well, first of all, to talk about like open source Starks, uh, I think there's been implementations already. So like even starting with like as early as my, uh, well, even before then, the Gen Stark was a kind of an open source implementation of Starks. I think there were other implementations. I think uh, uh, you had Remco at some point. They also worked on an open source Stark prover. And then Winterfell, for all practical purposes, uh, it is an open source Stark prover even right now. You can uh, use it now. You know some of the aspects. You know it's a, it's an evolving project. It's a, it's a research project in some ways where you know you probably shouldn't just use it in production just yet. But hopefully with time it will get to the point where you can use something like Winterfell for uh, uh, in production if you wanted to have this custom custom error that describes your specific computation. I do hope that over time people will migrate more toward using VMs because it is much simpler. Like you, if you don't need to learn how the cryptography under it operates and how you need to write errors, for example. Uh, it does make it much more uh, simple. I, I do think uh, like one of the, I don't want to say deficiencies, but the complexities of Starks has been that you had to like learn this error thing uh, before you could do anything useful. And there were, and I think still are very few people who understand them deeply enough to be able to write uh, errors for sophisticated programs <laughs> out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is not necessarily the case. For whatever reason, maybe because it came first, maybe because it is simpler, like R1CS is much better known. So like uh, it is, I don't think the deficiencies of Stark is that necessarily lacking open source implementations. I mean, there is even an open source implementation from Starkware for ETH Stark. Uh, uh, it is that they were extremely complicated to use without kind of like, they didn't have their own DSLs that uh, were simple enough or it basically required you to spend all the time on this, like scaling this learning curve before you can do anything useful with them. But now as we have, you know, Starkware has Cairo and we're working on Maiden VM, those should be much simpler. And I do think, you know, other VMs might come around as well. Somebody could build it, but I do think that the path forward for, kind of making this more accessible to developers is uh, this type of virtual machines, which make it much easier for people to just start using them. That's interesting. I do feel like there was like a lot of mind share spent on Snarks, especially in like 2019. There was this like, what was it? Snarktober, I think was the name. Um, when you just had research paper after research paper coming out just around Snarks primarily, and you didn't, or, or I haven't felt that in the research side around Starks, except for from primarily like the Stark community, which is quite small. It's It's been mostly around Starkware. But yeah, are you already meeting groups that are trying to get into it? And maybe, maybe with these VMs coming online, they could actually start to do something with these and use and kind of tap into the properties that Starks have 
that are that are unique? I, I think for one, I see uh, more people or more projects kind of making use of different start components, such as Fry, for example. Like there's uh, other mm -hmm. projects out there that are trying to rely on Fry and kind of marry like Georgie's uh, thinking, uh, you know, planning to use them. There are uh, other, other ones out there that I'm aware of. So I, I do feel like the understanding from kind of people who are very deep in ZK tech of what Starks are and how they can be used and, uh, you know, how different components of Starks can be married with different components of Starks is increasing uh, a lot. And that could lead to some interesting kind of outcomes. But uh, yeah, I also do think that if we work hard enough and make those VMs accessible enough, people will not even need to care about like what, what proving system I'm using or, you know, they, they can, uh, they don't even need to know that the underlying proving system of Maiden VM is Starks or something like that. They just know that there's zero mm -hmm. knowledge proof generated and then this is the properties that it has. Totally. So going forward, I mean, we just you mentioned before that right now Maiden is basically just staff with the Winterfell prover architecture but like what is the future of Maiden on on the technical level what do you already see on your roadmap to change so there are quite a few improvements that uh, we have in mind for Maiden specifically so as i mentioned earlier one of the things that this stuff was liking is random access memory so this is something that we're bringing in uh, that will make Maiden vm fully turing complete but there are two other things that we're trying to or uh, kind of working toward with Maiden vm the first one, we want to make it extremely developer-friendly. So uh, there should be no difference between, let's say, a developer writing code for Maiden VM versus like some other like VM that is not necessarily tailored to, towards zero-knowledge proofs. And uh, getting a little bit into technology right now, so most of the VMs that I'm aware of that are out there, they kind of expose a lot of this, uh, you know, it's not necessarily cryptography, but you need to understand. So like you don't work with integers within the VM, you work with, you know, field elements, for example. And we're trying to make it so that this is not the case. You only have to, like, if you wanted to, you can, you can just use 32-bit integers that the VM understands, and that's what the VM uh, kind of natively supports. Uh, there are a few other things, but uh, basically the idea is that to make it almost indistinguishable from a regular VM, so there is no additional kind of overhead that you need to learn about anything that like, a regular developer would not be aware, aware of already. So that, that's one aspect. The other aspect, um, which is maybe a bit further down the road, is that we're trying to build it so that it's kind of at the core of the VM, you can support kind of privacy in the future. Mm. So as an example, most rollups right now, they're used for scalability purposes. They're not used for privacy purposes. I think there are some rollups like from Aztec, for example, that yeah. do work for privacy purposes as well. But you know, most uh, rollups in their current shape are used for scalability. And this is what kind of the... Uh, original, not original, but the immediate goal of Maiden project is as well. But we do want to make sure that you can, there is a roadmap or clear roadmap of how you can get to, let's say, something as complex as smart, uh, privacy preserving smart contracts, mm. where it's not only that your transfers are private, like, you know, even on other networks uh, or in kind of pre privacy preserving systems, you, you can pr provide privacy for simple transactions. Uh, but what we want to achieve is privacy at the smart contract level, where if you want to hide the code and, uh, you know, you don't want to reveal the code of your smart contract, you can still do that. And, you know, the VM is being designed in such a way which uh, naturally should lead to something like that. I mean, there is still a lot of questions to answer in terms of how this will uh, work, how this will work uh, and still be interoperable with Ethereum and all of that stuff. And this is something that we'll be solving next year. Uh, <laughs> but there is a very clear understanding, like even the way the programs are defined and built is that you can hide parts of the program and reveal just the part that you want the public to know uh, and still generate the proof for the entire program, for example. Yeah. 
I mean, you're so right, though. Like the ZK boom, in a way, came because of the scaling question, not necessarily because of the privacy question. But there are a few teams that have retained that privacy ethos, but also bringing privacy back into the models. So in your case, like you're, I guess, using these Starks for both the kind of the ability to create a roll up, something almost to like scale a blockchain. But are you also using Starks in that model for privacy or do you use something else for privacy? No, no, the idea would be to use Starks as well. We will need to have the recursive Starks to, to do this efficiently. So this is something also to work on. But I think with the VM model, once you have the VM, a recursive Stark is definitely possible and mm. you know should be fairly efficient. Uh, so the idea is that uh, once we have recursive Starks and we have this kind of uh, foundational components that allow you to you know hide different parts of the program within the VM, you will be able to support privacy-preserving smart contracts on the blockchain. Wow. That's really exciting. I want to kind of go back just real quick to the beginning of this conversation, the Snarks versus Starks and how they differed. Do you actually take any ideas or insight that you've learned like that are happening in the Stark world? Or do you feel like this is completely a new path? Like the underlying builds, the kind of cryptography, the the things you're using are different enough that you you don't need to or you can't borrow from the Snark world? There is some boring going on already. I think, for example, the the changes to uh, Maiden VM that I'm working on right now, they flow directly from some something that Plonk was doing uh, mm. earlier. This uh, you know permutation based checks, and this is a very powerful technique that, in a real version of this VM, it wasn't even used because I wasn't aware of how to use them. But uh, now that this techniques permutation based checks are being used widely in the kind of community, I mean. I don't want to say because I'm I'm not sure I know the full history of how it started out, but uh, uh, you know, Plonk was uh, one of the systems that popularized it, and I think uh, you know, Starkware is using the, the same permutation-based checks in uh, Cairo, mm-hmm. uh, for example, and they're very very powerful cryptographic techniques uh, that uh, simplify a lot of things. So there is definitely some cross-pollination is going on, and then I think uh, you know things from Stark as uh, as I mentioned, Plonk serifization is somewhat I, it's not. That's the same as air, but it is. It has a lot of similar uh, ideas in it. So they're not two separate ecosystems, as I want to say. There is uh, there are differences, but there is also. I feel like with time, the differences are getting more and more blurred rather than becoming more accentuated. Yeah, I love that. It sounds amazing. I mean, I like that idea of sort of using these techniques from the different proving systems and then finding out. Like, I'm just wondering if, like, down the line, we'll ever be able to like mash up the acronym. Snarks? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not allowed to name things. I I, I think there is enough invested into different namings right now that probably is not going to change that much. Well, we'll see. (laughs) Anyway, cool. Thanks, Bobin, for coming on the show and sharing so much of this journey and actually like kind of giving us a fresh look into the Stark world, what's on the horizon. And with the project, Maiden, good luck with it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Tanya, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. 